You've launched a small business learning center for anyone trying to start a small business uh, that, that you're trying to help. The reason I launched the learning center is that one of the things that I learned through my eight year journey with over a hundred businesses on the air is that there's a common thread of what they were missing and they were missing a depth of education. And the education isn't one plus one equals two or what's the capital of the state of Florida. It's what are the real things that happen in a business from inventory management to HR risk to you know, hundreds and hundreds of topics. And you know that as a business owner, that those things happen. And so I wanted to create a center where people felt A, it's free, uh, B, people could do it in the privacy of their own home. And there are so many folks who don't know the answer to things, but they're embarrassed to admit they don't know it. Um, and I, I'm one of those people. Sometimes if you ask me a question, I may fake it. Um, and I decided years ago that I wasn't going to fake it. I was going to say, can you explain that to me? I don't know it. I don't understand that. And I realized that the key it, to It's very powerful if you can acknowledge ignorance. It's very powerful. It's, it's, it makes the other person feel... Uh, I think more connected to you. Yeah. All right, on today's episode of Yang Speaks, Andrew and I talk about the coronavirus relief bill that's on the floor in Congress and talk about what is going to happen if we do have a vaccine and what this means to the American people, specifically you. We also have the one and only Marcus Limonis, one of the coolest entrepreneurs in the game. You don't want to miss this episode. Check it out. And we are back. From Georgia. Yes, Zach is in Georgia too because Zach and I are attached at the hip. Anywhere he goes, I go. <laughs> when Zach goes on vacation, I go too. I say to Evelyn, hey, baby, Zach's going Zach on vacation. <laughs> Can I go? No, that's not really the way it goes. Because um, Zach no. is still unmarried. So I guess if one of us is going to, to <laughs> dictate <laughs> where we're going, it might be the guy with the, the wife and kids. Uh, so we are here in Georgia. It's a blast. I'm going to be campaigning with the legend Martin Luther King III uh, today. When I say campaigning, I'll actually be knocking on doors. How fun is that? Uh, by the time this podcast gets aired, you probably can find that stuff on social media. Knocking on doors has been fun. Um, you have like real honest exchanges with folks. Some folks recognize me. Some folks don't. Um, even if they don't recognize me, I, I cut sort of an odd figure, I'm sure. <laughs> Do they, what's been the reaction when you knock on the door? You know, like I think, you know, there's Fox News. It's the reaction any of us would have, Zach. The reaction is who the fuck is knocking on my door? That's like, that's the mm -hmm. reaction most right. everyone Why has. Why are you Because yeah. no, unfortunately we're not in a state of American life. It's like, oh, my neighbor is knocking. Like it's not really the way it's going down. It's well, like, I don't know about the rest of you. Someone knocks on your door. You're like, what the heck's going on? Like, who is it? Like, like there's like this alarmed feeling you have. <laughs> Am I the only one who has that? Does that say something about me? No, I do. Oh, my dog usually goes nuts too. Um, so it's never yeah, like so, a, so, it's never so like a joyful like some experience. Yeah, yeah. So there's some trepidation as they approach. And then when they see me, their, they, their curiosity has peaked. They're like, well, this is... 
um, not what I'd expected. And like, what is this about? And then very, very quickly, I uh, talk about being there canvassing for uh, Democratic candidates, John Ossoff and Reverend Warnock. And, and then they're like, oh, I, I know what this is. This is like a, like a political canvassing thing. They want me to vote. Oh, I'll definitely tell them I'm registered to vote. Um, you know, and then, but I, I will say that there's something very, very powerful where there is like an activation exchange that happens uh, where uh, if they are registered and they know about the election, then they uh, confirm and get very excited. And you really feel like the odds of them voting have increased significantly uh, in that instance, because like maybe they'll be like, yeah, like I know about it. But now I'm like, oh, I should really do it. Like it, it is very uh, reinforcing. And then if they don't know much about it, then you feel like they definitely know about it now and like you gave, gave them a sense of it. Um, right. So it does feel like canvassing works and the data bears that out. What um, I've seen this, but I'm, I think a lot of our listeners probably haven't. What's been your Georgia pitch? You know, Yang gets on the stump. He's got to take his message for Joe and Kamala that was originally the original message for Andrew that went to Joe and Kamala and now has gone to, to Ossoff and, and Warnock in Georgia. What's, what's the stump right now? How have you tied in? You know, what message are you, are you driving home? Uh, I say people need help. People need relief. And uh, electing John Ossoff and Reverend Warnock is the fastest way to speed that relief up uh, and get it, out the doors of Congress, also address things like health care that people care deeply about. Uh, and the fun thing, too, is that when I have these lists from um, the campaigns, they are registered Democrats. They don't send you to uh, knock on um, MAGA household doors or anything like that. So, 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 so it, it is like it's a very, fairly straightforward uh, pitch when you're knocking on doors. It's like, hey, get out and vote. Uh, if uh, if I was giving a speech to a general audience that was um, more mixed, then uh, it would be about trying to have a functional government as opposed to a dysfunctional government, uh, because uh, that's what's at stake. Got it. Speaking of uh, functional government, um, we have a relief bill, kind of. We have a proposed relief bill, and I'm pissed and you're pissed because it doesn't really have any direct cash relief. It does have an increase, and I credit some of Humanity Forward's work to this, like there is an increase to unemployment. Um, it's like $300 a week, which is not which is not nothing. Uh, it's like $1,200 a month. Um, but you have to file all the paperwork. Uh, it, it's, it's ambiguous it's in terms of how people, long you get it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so thoughts on the relief bill? Give us an overview of what you've seen coming out of Congress <laughs> or not coming out of Congress right now. You know, this process is very deeply telling, Zach, where you had Mitch McConnell saying, no, 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 uh, you know, 400 billion, Nancy Pelosi saying, yes, 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 2 trillion. And then they could not come together for months. The White House at one point was ready to sign off on a $1.8 trillion deal. Uh, and I was like, take that deal. <laughs> Let's try to get better than that. Uh, and then, and then they didn't take that deal. Um, and now what happened was a group of relatively centrist uh, senators from both parties, it's like Mitt Romney, Joe Manchin, and Susan Collins, got together and said, hey, we're sick of the gridlock. 
And so we are going to split the baby in half, $900 billion. Uh, and, and this is the thing that is infuriating to me, is that now everyone's like, oh yeah, okay, yeah, we, we should do that, we should do that. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? That like uh, that you just like had your position staked out all this time, and then as soon as some comes up with like a like who could not think that splitting the difference between two trillion dollars and five five hundred billion, like uh, you know, it's like someone magically said like, hey, you know what's kind of between those numbers, nine hundred billion, and then everyone's like, oh well, thank you for enlightening us. Like like what it's it's ridiculous that it took a group of bipartisan senators proposing something that's relatively obvious that is kind of like a split the difference type proposal. And then now things have fallen so deeply in the calendar that um, Nancy Pelosi and the gang and others are like, yeah, yeah, we're going to get on board with this. Let's try and push this through. Because they should have pushed something through months and months ago. It did not take until December with this bipartisan group shaming them essentially being like, hey guys, like it is ridiculous that you can't do the obvious and negotiate and come to the middle. So here we're going to present a middle ground alternative. So big picture, it's an indictment of the process. Um, I applaud the senators who stepped up and proposed this because it, like, at least eventually someone was like, this is total bullshit. Like, you know, we should uh, try and come in the middle. I wish that the proposal was much, much more cash oriented than it is, um, but. I, but I'm not some um, some person who's like, look, like I've been saying for months in some way or another, something is better than nothing. So if you pass something, I give you like the thank goodness you did something. And like you said, Zach, those unemployment insurance uh, benefits of $300 a week would be immensely meaningful for millions of Americans. So if you do that, uh, I support it. I applaud it. But... It should not have taken this long. If you're going to do it, you should skew it much more towards cash relief because uh, when I did the math, the $900 billion you're, you're looking at is almost $3,000 ahead for everyone. And so if you were to line up Americans and say, hey, we've got this $900 billion plan. It's like a couple hundred billion to, to state and local governments, which I support. Uh, it's got uh um, some more PPP money, which I support, though it's inefficient, uh, you know. Um, so we've got these things, uh, un- unemployment insurance benefits, or everyone gets 3K. Uh, you know, 80% of Americans would be like, why don't you just give everyone 3K? That helps uh, the small business owner, that helps small business owners' customers, that helps the state and local employees, that helps the person who doesn't have a job, that person, uh, that that helps like the the folks that are going to slip to the cracks from the institutional um, plumbing because if you plow hundreds of billions of dollars into state and local governments, which again, I support, like, uh, you know, there are going to be a lot of people that never see a dime of that. So if you're trying to take care of people, just take care of people and then let the institutions um, kind of adapt and figure it out. Because if everyone who touched the institution is taken care of, uh, like the most blatant example of this is airlines. It's like, you have airlines, they're hemorrhaging money, I get it, it's terrible, um, they're firing a lot of people, terrible. It's like, like when you tell me about an airline, who do I care about? The airline attendants, the, the, the flight attendants, the people who throw the, the luggage onto the, the plane, um, you know, the pilots to a lesser extent. Um, I say lesser extent because they're, you know, like they have savings, um, unlike a lot of these other people. 
so if you just say, look, we're going to take care of all of the human beings that work at the airline, uh, and then, like, I don't care about the capital structure of the airline. Like, I, I don't care about, you know, <laughs> whether they have to, like, you know, we have systems for that. You know, like, they, they can go into some sort of, um, you know, receivership or, like, you know, financial distress and continue to operate. Businesses do that all the freaking They time. have assets, like, you know, unlike the people, you know, they go bankrupt. People will still, there's still money, there's still business, there's still revenue line, there's still planes they can sell, whatever it is. Like so many human beings, they go bankrupt, they got nothing, right? Yeah, we're taking care of institutions, not people is the big complaint. It's like, you know, if you say, look, the airline's balance sheet is okay, but like all the people, you know, and they fired 90,000 people anyway, last I checked, you know what I mean? So it's like yeah. you, true <laughs> up their, 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 you true up their balance sheet and then they're just like, hey, now that I've got the money, I still don't need these freaking, you know, like uh, uh, landlocked. Um, airline attendants and luggage uh, packers and, and uh, security people and the rest of it. Um, so so th- that stuff makes me very, very sad. You can tell I'm frustrated. Uh, and l- the fact that we're in December and people are doing, again, the obvious, it's like, you know, you know there, there was part of me that was like, you know, if you come up with something magical, then I'll be like, okay. But like you knew, you know, and instead they just come up with like a hybrid, um, hi- a hybrid of the obvious. Super excited for anything that gets money out into the American people's hands. Like, I'll applaud. But there's a lot of frustration. I'm, I know I'm not the only one who feels it. Because, like, you watch this process. Just, I don't know, you're, you, you're like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, you guys can't get anything done since March and April. And then, like, you eventually come together with, like, the most obvious thing in the world, which is a compromise package that doesn't even have cash relief, like, uh, you know, at a high level. Anyway. One thing that would so work. That, <laughs> yes. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Let me ask you this. Like, you, you know, I've been, you've met a lot of these people. I've met a lot of these people. These people being congressmen and women, senators, representatives. Is it that they don't care? Is it that they don't understand? Is it that there's no consequences for no for their inaction? Is it that they're in a bubble? Like what? Like to me, to, I mean, every American is like, yeah, do something, bro. Like that. That is like the natural reaction of Americans. Um, but what? 
why what's the why here why is that why is this inaction happening let's say magically you are a member of congress right now zach you're one of like the you know 435 you would get there and you would find that you have almost zero influence over this negotiation uh if i make you like an ordinary congressperson or junior congressperson um you have party leadership uh, with nancy pelosi uh, and Sidney hoyer and the gang you know they're 78 80 years old uh and, and they're like settle down zach you're still in your 30s like you know we you haven't been around the block like we have um let leadership handle this uh and you really don't have much of a choice there, there are dozens of members of congress that are and oh, i mean you know what are your choices really so that dynamics happening in the house with nancy pelosi uh where she's essentially dictating you know negotiation and you're not in the room like you can't suggest something right. Like you uh, even proposed the, a secret bill to McConnell. I don't know if you saw this. There was a separate bill that her and Schumer did alone. Anyway, keep going. Yeah, yeah. So that there, yeah, exactly. That that just says it all. It's like literally like Nancy and Chuck Schumer are like you know. So so like what happens is a lot of the uh, ordinary legislators are good people. They got elected. They're trying to uh, stick up for their constituents, but they don't have really any say in this. Um, and, you know, majority party. You know, the leadership has it tied up. Minority party, it's even worse. Uh, and congressional legislative rules have really become very dark. Where there's something called the Hastert rule that uh, we're not going to hear a bill unless the majority of the majority party wants, wants it. Um, so if you think about it, that means that, like, no one can introduce a bill. <laughs> unless you're, like, if you're in the minority, you're like, this is all a giant waste of my time. Um, but but the, the the tough part is, if a constituent or a uh, you know, reporter sticks a mic in your face and is like, hey, what can you do about this? Like, you can't just be like, I can do absolutely nothing about this. Like, and, and instead you say, uh, you know, oh, like, you know, I'm going to continue to fight for like the principles that my like, constituents put me in. Like, you have no, you have, there's not nothing you can really do. Um, uh, and, and so that's what's happening, Zach, is you have really like a few human beings who are very, very distant from everyday reality uh, in, in the form of... Um, uh, the the leadership, uh, I, I believe, that, and then and then the rank and file have very little control. So then the the rank and file, some of them have come up and tried to present um, compromises, alternatives. There was like the Problem Solvers Caucus that proposed a bill that's actually not that different from this one. <laughs> like like a group of, of of members got together uh, and said, "Hey, we're sick of the gridlock. Um, you know, here's our compromise bill." And unfortunately, it did not take off. Um, and the reason why this is different, uh, I think one is the Senate, not the house this time. Um, two, it's December, uh, three, Nancy has a tighter grip on, um, the house than Mitch has on the Senate. So if a group of senators come together and propose it, then everyone's like, oh, I guess we, we, you know, we should really look at that. Um, so that, so that's, what's going on is that, uh, like if there's something you really need to dig into, and we talked about this in an earlier podcast with Catherine Gale. Uh, it's it's the mechanics of how things happen in the house. Uh, you know, people don't realize just how jacked up it is in there. Yeah. It's, um, and then to top it all off, you've got a lame duck president, right? You have a... Yeah, you have a checked you know, out like a, executive who's, you know, lame duck, like railing about lame duck nonsense. Too, right? I, I, you know, he, I mean, he's, he seems to be in um, even worse mental shape than usual. Uh, he's going to be coming mm-hmm. here to Georgia yeah. in a minute and people are kind of uh, chewing their fingernails, being like, oh, man, he's going to be so off the rails. <laughs> anyway, that, that's happening this that, weekend. It'll have happened by the time this airs. 
yeah, Trump, Trump rally in Georgia. Um, oh boy. Um, so I think it's one of the reasons why, um, we are doing what we're doing in Humanity Forward, um, because cash relief needs to be, we need to hammer Congress with, um, the why on cash relief. So if you haven't donated, movehumanityforward.com. We are spending money on education, polling, and advertisements, and research, and lobbying, and all the stuff like behind the scenes that needs to happen to get cash relief done. And if we don't do anything, clearly you know the result. I, I've had very, very encouraging conversations with members of Congress. It's very exciting. Like we have enough congressional support where, uh, at least out of the House, uh, like we we could get together and have like a, you know, like a proposal for sure. Um, so the, the the plan is to try and just gin up support to get it to a point where. Uh, it will get real momentum and uh, and pass. Uh, so that's what we're working on. If that sounds good to you, please do donate to movehumanityforward.com. It's exciting. Uh, you know, like I, I feel like it's the highest leverage thing I may ever do because it's like, you know, we have a chance to unlock hundreds of billions of dollars for people. Uh, the money's going out. We just need to change the ratio of the amount going to people as opposed to institutions. Correct. So... Factually speaking, um, Corona has got good news and bad news. Um, start with the bad news. Coronavirus is getting worse right now. So hospitalizations doubled totalized in the month of November. We had about 51 deaths an hour, according to um, a number of sources, but CNN's the one I used. Um, and then you had about 30, just shy of 37,000 deaths in November um, compared to, and for context, the flu kills 22,000 Americans uh, a season, at least last year it did. Um, so like it's, it's bad. Um, but the good news is that it looks like we have a vaccine. It's coming as a multiple vaccines. And one of the things I'm, I'm curious about, Andrew, um, I'm curious about your thoughts on the virus right now, what's happening, but also, so former presidents, I think this is fascinating, <laughs> kind of hilarious, uh, former presidents, Clinton, Bush, and Obama have agreed to take the vaccine on TV to promote trust which I think is hilarious because they kind of embody what most Americans don't trust, which is politicians. Um, but I'm curious your thoughts on, I, on that. I, I love, I love it. Uh, you know, I, I had a conversation <laughs> with um, someone about this. I would get the vaccine on TV uh, and I'm in a lower risk profile than those guys. I mean, uh, like the older ex-presidents, you know, it's legit. On both sides. I mean, you know, they're, they're higher risk, um, but they're also, you know, probably going to be made, made more uncomfortable by the vaccine. So if you see, they're exactly the right demo. Like if you see a couple of elderly gentlemen getting the vaccine uh, and you're an elderly American, you're like, oh, I should probably do that then. Um, so I, I love it. Uh, yeah. And, and for black people, uh, there's like a high mistrust of vaccines for historical reasons. And so Barack Obama getting it on TV may help with that. Um, so I, I'm a huge fan. They need an Asian on that stage. I'll go. <laughs> <laughs> I guess like my hesitation is like the people that I, I, I do think it's a good idea. Like generally, I just think a lot of there's such a mistrust with our government and politicians in general, which is why Trump is elected. Why he has such strong support. So you know what people will mistrust, Zach? They'll, they'll mistrust whether that actually happened. They'll be like, oh, they're injecting salt water in them. Yeah. <laughs> like that's, that's the way it's going to ah. go. Uh, that's actually, I mean, right there, it's going to be fake news around it. I mean, I, I think if you were president, um, I think having former presidents do it, but also like being the president doing it, but also I think getting, you know, I'd be curious at getting like figures like a 
like your Joe Rogan or LeBron. your Tucker Carlson or some of these or athletes. Like, um, yeah, like if we get everyone under the sun, we would just be like, hey, it's your um, uh, it's your patriotic duty, duty to publicly vaccinate yeah. uh, civically and then like put that out on social media. Um, I, I, you know, that we have to try and distribute the vaccine as quickly as possible because people are dying and it, it may not be you that's dying, but you may infect someone else who dies. Uh, so, uh, so uh, sign me up to take the vaccine for sure. Yeah, I'm, uh, like I'm, I'm honest, but honestly, I'm like a little skeptical of it. I'm like, uh, cause I'm healthy. Right. I think there's that inclination. It's like, well, I haven't got Corona. I don't, maybe I'm immune to it, but I do think there's a patriotic piece of it to me. I want to see, like they've published some studies. I think when they start pumping the vaccine to people, they'll, they'll make all that available, that data really easy. Yeah. Yeah. So that's you you need about. a scientific consensus of like folks that are unimpeachable to be like, look, this thing is safe. Uh, and that that's what you're getting. And, um, um, that step needs to be taken for sure. Yeah. And a lot of scientists have said this isn't a complicated virus. Like they've known about it. They just didn't have a cure, right? They just have to figure it out. But it's not like, uh, it's not HIV, you know, it's that it's uh, in terms of its complexity and its ability to evolve and things like that. So um, I am optimistic and we'll be, you know, talking about how we're taking the vaccine, sure. Um, but anyway, I was just curious your thoughts on <laughs> the trust piece of this, you know? Oh, the trust thing is going to be ongoing. We're going to come back to this too. You know, I came, I was on the record saying we should pay people to get the vaccine because uh, that would increase adoption. Uh, we should be investing billions and billions of dollars to try and both accelerate and increase adoption levels because people are dying. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and there are all of these other uh, effects in addition to the, the health effects, uh, the sickness and the death. Um, so as soon as the vaccine's safe, uh, we, we need to invest in it. We need to say, look, I get it. You don't trust it. Uh, you know, what can we do to convince you uh, just to smooth the path? Here's a thousand bucks, you know, uh, the rest of yeah. it. I mean, re realistically, too, it's like if I, get a, if I get a vaccine as an adult, um, what's, what's really like my downside or risk? My downside is that I'm going to feel crummy for a few days. That's really it. Uh, you know, so. Really? Uh, what about yeah, long term like, effects? Like, I don't know, things we haven't been able to study because we did objectively rush it to market. Uh, well, I'll, I'll tell you one thing for sure, that taking the vaccine is going to have a much, much lower, like, um, you know, like, impact than if I actually got got the virus is walking around. That's true. That's <laughs> you, know, you, know, you know what I mean? Uh, and, and my getting uh, the coronavirus itself is an inevitability if i just walk around forever not vaccinated <laughs> you know what i mean um one of our tight ends on the bills tommy sweeney uh got a he has mitocarditis i don't know what that is but it's a heart condition that is a side effect of coronavirus so he had a, he's out for the season um he had to like basically take the year off after that and he was perfectly the healthy virus itself it. is nasty it's one reason why getting yeah. this vaccine is the move yeah, if you want to, I trust think, in I science. Think, trust in science. Seriously, and trust anybody who says they had it. Like a lot of people who seriously got it. It's horrible. Yeah. Um. All right. So we've got a cool guest. Um. Because this guy hosted one of my favorite shows called The Prophet, and I feel like I don't know. Sometimes when you can watch entertainment and feel like you're learning something, I always feel like I did learn a lot from this show. Uh. To me, it's a win-win. That's kind of a nerd, but um. 
let's talk about your your new BFF on the show. <laughs> so you know, here on Yang Speaks, we love entrepreneurs, and we've got one of the most badass entrepreneurs in the country here on Yang Speaks. This week, it's Marcus Lemonis. You may know him from CNBC's The Profit, uh, which is the P-R-O-F-I-T, but he goes around helping uh, struggling businesses and investing in them. And then he has another show, The Partner, where he then tries to find someone to help him operate the businesses that he's invested in. And this guy has invested $75 million of his own money in dozens of struggling businesses around the country uh, and taking a loss on a lot of it. He just loves this shit. Uh, and it's wild talking to someone who's wired that deeply uh, for entrepreneurship. I loved uh, what makes him tick. Uh, you know, he and I, I think, you know, had some some um, fundamental beliefs in common. Other things we uh, saw somewhat differently. So thrilled to have him on the pod, Marcus Lemonis. I am thrilled to welcome to the podcast, Marcus Lemonis. You may know him as the star and host of The Profit on CNBC. Uh, people in the public markets know him as the CEO and chairman of Camping World, which is like the biggest RV company in the markets. He's an entrepreneur's entrepreneur, someone who's a huge believer in entrepreneurship as a force for good in the world. Marcus, it's a thrill to, to have you here. Welcome. Andrew, thank you. You know, I was looking forward to this because you and I had a uh, little back and forth on Twitter. We were, I was telling people that you and I were going to debate it on your podcast and people were excited. I don't even know if you saw it. I did remember the original back and forth and you and I were connected in part through Dominique Wilkins, who's on the board of this great nonprofit culture city that uh, it helps families who are struggling with autism in different ways, uh, inclusion services. Uh, so thank you for that. Absolutely. hundred percent. So what are we meant to debate? I thought you and I agreed on everything, Marcus. <laughs> what was the Twitter beef? We we was well, not a beef. I don't I don't I don't live my life that way. Neither do you. But I think it was around um, the difference between capitalism and socialism. Wow! And so, um, uh, where were you, and where was I? <laughs> well, I think I think rather than us having revisionist history. Uh, you know, I'm a super fan of yours and the way you think about things, be primarily because you put people first in all cases. Uh, and I think that this, this dilemma that we've lived in the last couple of years has really polarized people to think about things and feel the need to pick a side, which is why I wanted to start out by making this comment about back and forth. I think there's a way to pick a side and have it be respectful like you are and I'm always going to be. And there's a way to have differing opinions and meet somewhere in the middle. And so part of the reason that I made that mention when we first started was to demonstrate for people how easy it is to have good open dialogue, intelligent, friendly, constructive dialogue that doesn't have to be vicious and it doesn't have to be um, anything other than exploring and learning and listening. You know, it's been, it's important. I've, I've noticed you do that. Well, I noticed that you do that. Well, thank you. I felt like you and I have a lot in common. We're about the same age. Uh, we're, we're entrepreneurs, um, first generation born in this country. 
Um, you had an advantage I did not have, which is you kind of grew up in a family business. Uh, you know, like your your family was uh, in the auto business. And I have to say, like, I think if you are like uh, anywhere near a car dealership, it's like one of the most genuine forms of commerce that there is. <laughs> you know, like there are people that are like in, in, in business. Uh, but but I mean, you worked at a car dealership at a young age. Is that right? I did. You know, I, my family had been in the auto business for a number of years. And you say that I had a dis- an advantage by being in the business. And to some degree, I did. But I will tell you, Andrew, that understanding how family businesses function is part of the reason why I got involved in small business, because of the dysfunction that, that exists in a family business. And, you know, a lot of people don't like to talk about it. Um, but you're right. Commerce is best in the auto business because it truly is a capitalistic environment. Well, I, I have friends who grew up um, uh, around family business as well, and a lot of them are very entrepreneurial. Like, I, I think if you're exposed to that, it's so real and impactful. And then if you go to school and you get like a genuine, uh, you know, a customary office job, you're a little bit like um, uh, bored, <laughs> honestly. Uh, like, I, I think, you know, uh, and, and for you, you had a ton of uh, energy and entrepreneurship uh, from day one. You, you even made a political foray relatively early on, uh, which I appreciated because that's very uh, that's like a very big uh, uh, big challenge at a young age. You know, it's funny. I as a kid, I was always involved in business, and I wanted to to really test the boundaries of both myself. But I think at the time I was 20 or 21, I wanted to test the boundaries of my family. My family were huge Republicans uh, as, a, as, as they were in Miami. And uh, I went to school in Milwaukee and I worked for Senator Herb Cole uh, for a couple of summers. And, you know, when you're young, you have an illusion of things uh, that may be different than reality. But I was very much rooted in social justice. And I think people sometimes confuse socialism with social justice. And I am a capitalist at heart. I believe in making money, but I do not believe in making money uh, at the cost of somebody else. And so I always tell people that say, I want to start a business so I can do good for other people. I'd say, yeah, how about start a business, run your business, run it really profitably, take the proceeds, profits, and the fruits of that business, and then do good with it. And I think those two have to really be separated out. And um, uh, when I ran for office, I ran in South Florida in Miami. And to show you what a neophyte I was, I ran against a two-term incumbent, Cuban-American. And part of my area was Miami Beach. And I ran as a Democrat. Part of my area was Miami Beach. And part of my area was Little Havana. And I was always confused by the fact that Little Havana was a very, very staunch Republican uh, foothold. And I didn't understand it. You know, when you're 21 years old and you're coming out of college, you tend not to do the necessary research before you jump into things. You just sort of jump into them and hope they work out. And I remember going to a few debates um, and my family's business was in Little Havana. So I said, okay, I'm going to run as a Democrat. I have Miami Beach. I have Little Havana where everybody knows my family. And I ran into a buzzsaw. And I learned very quickly that um, that immigration and opportunity don't always correlate to political affiliation. I made that mistake. And uh, it was an interesting process. I ended up losing by a pretty considerable amount. I think I ended up losing by like six or seven points. Um, And it was a great experience for me because I watched the two-term incumbent do nothing. 
And I watched myself for about six months, knock on every door, raise money, all the things that, you know, you know, are necessary to make it work. Um, and after I, the night that I lost, I really matured through the process. And the night that I lost, I cried like a baby because it was, the first, <laughs> you know, well, it wasn't because I lost. It was because I had never really experienced a defeat that way. And it was in a public forum. And it was my first foray into, at the time when you're 21, it feels like embarrassment, right? But it wasn't. Yeah. And it was the first time that publicly it didn't work out for me. And uh, it was a real, real strong building block for the future. Real strong building block for me. Yeah, I had a similar public failure when I had a company go bust when I was 25. And so it wasn't as public as you in that, like, you know, no one picked up a newspaper and read about it. Um, but everyone I knew knew about it. And that setback really, really hurt. Like, I felt like a total failure. Felt like everyone regarded me as a failure. Uh, uh, and that did end up building resilience in the years afterwards, because I was like, well, whatever I go through, it can't be as bad as that. <laughs> you, you learned know? a lot about yourself. I would assume you learned a lot about yourself. Oh yeah. I learned a ton about myself. Uh, and you know, I got back on the horse a number of years later, uh, where I ran a private company, uh, that did well, another one did not do well. And then the one after that did well. Uh, so I can relate to what you're saying about, um, about running a quality business um, intrinsically, uh, you know, it's like you um, you want to be a good person. You want to treat people well, and if the business is successful, then you end up creating opportunities for the folks who work for you uh, in a really profound and beautiful way. Like I came of age as a, a CEO of a small private company, and you feel like you're the head of an extended family. Uh, you know, you, if you hire someone, you feel very responsible for them. And then if, if they prosper and, you know, can get married and buy a home, like, you know, you, you feel great about that. Uh, and then if tough times hit, like you look around and think like, wow, am I really going to have to, you know, let someone go or, or make cutbacks in various ways? So I think that maturation process for me, it coincided in my case with when I met my now wife um, and got married. Whereas for you, you had this like incredible business growth path for, for, you know, it seems like your twenties and thirties. And then eventually you made the foray into media. And I'm really curious about how the heck they found you or you found them, uh, because you are a natural in terms of the media. Um, uh, but there are a lot of CEOs, a lot of chairmen. It's like, what, how the heck did they find you and say, Hey, do you want to go identify, uh, small businesses and help them out? It really came out of, so my company's only been public since 2016, and I've been making the profit since 2013. And I remember when I had my first meeting uh, at um, 30 Rock in, at, at NBC in downtown New York, Manhattan. And I walked into the building and I was, gosh, I don't know, I was in my, my 30s at the time. And I was totally overwhelmed by, it. you know, you go in there and the Saturday Night Live studios are there. And you, you go in for this pitch meeting with, you know, a senior executive at NBC and I, I rarely get nervous, but for the first time I was nervous. And the meeting had been set up by Charlie Ebersol, the son of Dick Ebersol, who was in charge of NBC Sports for years. And I went into this giant conference room with uh, chairman of uh, CNBC, Mark Hoffman, and one of his teammates, Jim Ackerman. And uh, the meeting had been set up and they said, okay, we'd love to hear what you have to say. And I started the meeting by telling them that I did not think that they were running the network properly which is never really a good way to start a meeting 
with a guy who runs the place that you just said wasn't run right. And he said to me, well, what do you mean by that? And I said, you know, you spend the bulk of your day focusing on Fortune 100, Fortune 50 companies, the public market, the bond market, uh, the high yield market. And at the end of the day, all those businesses started as something else. 2008 and nine happens and all everybody's talking about is the crash of the market, not the crash of the entrepreneur. And as the market starts to pick back up again in 12 and 13, all we kept hearing about was the rebound in the market, not the crash of the small business owner. So I really decided in that moment to be very transparent and say, listen, I think CNBC doesn't understand its funnel. And the funnel to grow your daytime business is to find viewers that are going to want to be attracted to business in an unorthodox way. And they're going to want to be uh, feel like what the message you're communicating to them is relatable. When you talk about a company making $4.2 billion for the quarter, the guy who owns the flower shop or the restaurant owner or whoever it may be, those numbers and those figures are, they're, they're fun to listen to, but you don't even know how many commas or decimal points are in that equation. And so I pitched them on this idea of really traveling the country and trying to find unique stories of great special business owners that were story rich with business as the backdrop, as opposed to business rich with the story of the characters, the families being sort of a small tentacle of it. And I remember um, uh, them saying to me, well, how's it going to work? Who's going to invest the money? And ultimately- And you were like, I'm going to do it. You could keep your money, NBC. No? Well, no, I said I was going to do it. <laughs> it ended up being all my money, Andrew, for one specific reason. I wanted to make sure that the process was authentic. And I wanted to make sure that the small business owner truly found um, a, a partner and not a producer. And that's very hard in television, as you know. It's very hard to kind of find very the rare. between fact it, and fiction. It, yeah, it's, it's very rare. It would require someone like you who just loves small business, loves enterprise, and would actually want to put your money up. Very rare. No wonder it had to be you, Marcus. My gosh. Uh, because most people who'd want to do this would be happy with the media exposure, but wouldn't want the commitment because, you know, you get into one of these businesses, it's a massive commitment. Mm -hmm. Well, in the, in the eight years we've been on air, I've invested over $75 million. Incredible. And, and in most cases, uh, it doesn't work out. I say that to be transparent about it. In most cases, it doesn't work out. And the odds are people always want to keep score. Does it work? Does it not work? And the odds are is that when you're investing in a small business, it by nature has high risk, just like a restaurant has high risk or a gym has high risk. It by nature has high risk. And so the investment thesis is relatively flawed. And my thesis was, is if I can invest in these folks and create a social experiment and create a curriculum for young people, that in the end, in my overall enterprise, all the bigger businesses that I'm either running or investing in, the fruits of that labor will sort of manifest themselves and I'll get paid dividends in other ways. That's an an incredible mindset of abundance in action. That's like, look, like if if I plant these seeds, like, uh, you know, it'll end up uh, flourishing in unprecedented and unpredictable ways um, that will end up impacting me. Marcus, you and I share something very deep. Um, 
you've done a more direct job than I have uh, significantly. So, um, like, I, I despair for the uh, death of American entrepreneurship, uh, where if you look at, because I'm a numbers guy, um, particularly among young people, like the rate of small business formation has plummeted over the last number of years. In most of the country, more businesses have been closing than opening. Uh, if you look at small business or or new business formation among younger generations, uh, it's it's down more than 50% than it was in previous generations. And you keep talking or, you know, if you turn on CNBC, frankly, or a lot of these other places, like you don't get that message. You don't get the message that small businesses are, um, are, and this is even pre-COVID. Like with COVID now, you're like accelerating um, the the elimination uh, of a lot of these businesses. It's like a hyper cleanse. It's like a hyper cleanse right now. Yeah, it's heartbreaking because you and I know what the what, what go, went into that small business. It's like this person busting their tail for you know, years or even decades, like building that bar or restaurant or flower shop or hardware store or whatever it is. Maybe that was what we were debating about on social. I am a huge believer in the theory behind small business. And I'm a huge believer in the idea of taking chances on yourself. But I am also a huge believer that you have to do the work and you have to follow a process and you have to be accountable for your behavior and you have to know your numbers and you have to you have to execute and i have found over the years that i meet uh, uh i meet the have and the have nots and that's not uh what you typically would think it would mean the have and the have nots are they either have it or they don't and when i say have it they understand that in order to compete with a medium or large size business they have to execute at a higher level and saying, well, I'm a small business and I don't know my numbers because I don't have the resources or I'm a small business and I don't um, have uh, uh, the, the uh, good process in my business because I don't have the capital. And I always tell small businesses that I hate to call small, I just call them local businesses, that you have to elevate and operate at such a higher level to even have a chance of surviving, to even have a chance at levering the playing field. And I, I don't want to feel sorry for you. I want to motivate you to get it right. Well, I love meeting people who uh, run small businesses or local businesses because that you know they eat, sleep, and breathe it. And, and oftentimes, uh, like they're such um, energetic humans, uh, you know, like very likable. Um, you know, like on this one. So, so that there are two things at work that I think have actually been very much intention in American life the last number of years. Um, so, number one is. I completely agree with you that you got to know your, your numbers and your business and execute at a high level, like whether you're the truck, uh, the food truck, uh, all the way up to, you know, in your case, the public company. I mean, it doesn't matter what your scale is. Like you, you have to know um, how you can make money on like every transaction or, you know, or, or um, who to hire and who, who you have to get rid of and things like that. Um, but there are these structural trends in the economy. And COVID is the, the biggest example where I was talking to a restaurateur uh, who's an excellent restaurateur, uh, and the fact that those restaurants are now um, going to be shut for a while has nothing to do with his competence as a restaurateur. You know, he—I he, mean—he's very competent. <laughs> but you know, but you look at what's going on with COVID. He—I he, mean—he broke down the numbers. He was like, "Look, the fact is, 
you know, like uh, if I'm forced to space out the my patrons in my restaurant, like it's a thirty percent reduction. Most of my money came from from booze. People aren't coming into my place to like sit there and have leisurely drinks anymore. Like if they're doing anything, they're ordering the lower margin takeout. Uh, and and so when I do the math on it. Like I'm better off staying closed, you know, <laughs> and so, um, so like it, it's that kind of trade-off. So both things are true. It's like, do people need to be ass kickers and hold themselves accountable? hundred percent, yes. And then, like, are there structural problems right now that are making it so that young people are having trouble starting businesses and like people who've been, you know, putting their uh, blood, sweat, and tears into a business are, are now forcing being forced to close their doors? Like, yeah, that too, that's true too. I think it's the multi-generational family businesses where there is um, clearly the multi-generations working there. And whether it's two generations or three that have built their whole livelihood and their family's lineage off of this one business that really are the ones that scare me the most. You know, a, a guy out of college, our age, you know, say we got out of college and we wanted to start like a sports bar or something. I'm not minimizing the importance of that business. But it is different um, when you have multi-generations and you have kids and, yeah. and it's just a different business. And I've seen so many get taken out and, you know, a solid business, and, and this may be something to, to talk about, but a solid business prior to COVID is usually one that will make it through COVID because they understood don't leverage too much, have cash in reserve, keep your, your, your personnel expenses variable. Uh, those who are living on the edge with lots of credit card debt, taking money out of their company, they didn't treat their customers right, they didn't treat their employees right. When things went bad, that net that most customers will provide or most associates will provide, that soft landing doesn't exist. And so when we look at the number of businesses that may end up going away, you have to really be honest with yourself and say, there's a portion of them that quite frankly, probably we're going to go away anyway. And that doesn't in, make in an extended good. period of time. Like you sped up the cycle. I, I, I think there was a massive accelerant um, of a, a lot of these trends. Um, and a, a lot of them, I agree with you. If you stretched out the time horizon, we're heading in that direction. Uh, so you've invested $75 million directly into these small businesses. And you know it's real because then you came up essentially with like a companion show where you needed to find people that would help operate some of these businesses, uh, which makes perfect sense if you've been <laughs> invested to become a partner uh, in, in dozens of enterprises. Uh, like this must really be for the love because like I'm sure you're accountant or financial advisor your team is like hey marcus like there are a lot easier ways to make money than this <laughs> actually i'll take it a step further most people that i'm very close with including my now spouse is vehemently opposed to me doing what i do because they believe without digging deeper that it feels reckless to them and it feels irresponsible to them my counter argument to them is that i don't have any kids i don't have any brothers and sisters um, and that my connection to, to society in, in the U.S. is through these small business owners. They are like extended family. Wow. And so wow. I really looked at this as a giant social experiment. And I said to people, look, at the end of the day, I, I don't mind paying taxes and I don't mind and I love to make money. And so if those are two things exist, I'm left with something. And so if I don't have kids or lineage to leave the money to, and I can change people's perspectives of themselves, 
I can change other people's perspectives of how hard it is to do this, or I can teach lessons in between. That's okay for me. That's actually good enough for me. And, and I mean, how much money does somebody need? I don't, I don't, like, I don't, people don't need that much money. Well, the obvious question, given that you're a relative newlywed, is are kids like in, on the way? <laughs> no, probably not. Because I've made it. It's a, people ask me that all the time. But the life choices that I've made, and this is one of the hardest things for entrepreneurs, is that to, to own your own business requires sacrifice. And uh, most people think before they buy the business or before they start it, that it's going to be this glamorous thing where they're going to be their own boss and they're going to write their own checks. Yeah, it's not. All this it's actually the work least much glamorous job. It's the least glamorous <laughs> yeah. job with the most risk, with the least reward. And so, if you really were, if you were running an ad campaign of how, of why not to open up a small business, the ad campaign would be easy. If you'd like to lose money and have a lot of stress in your life and have broken relationships, you can run the risk of starting a business. It'll probably happen. And for me, I wanted to be that that um, that person that changes it. And it was funny because we always get compared to Shark Tank where the sort of two shows where people invest in businesses. And it was really important to me to differentiate ourselves from that show, primarily because I wanted to know more. I wanted to know, okay, I saw a deal get done. Tell me more, tell me about the people, tell me about their motivation, tell me what's gonna happen next. What about their employees? Who's making the decisions? And you know better than most people that, that that the reality of things are much deeper than the surface, much deeper. Yeah. And you're excellent at peeling the onion back. And um, I think more of us need to do that. There's more to the story, like Paul Harvey would say, there's more to the story. And that was really how the profit was born. What's the rest of the story? How does it really work? And it doesn't always end well. There's not a giant move that bus movement moment where everybody's happy and 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 cries. Yeah, you, your I mean your stories are much more real and human. I think um, Shark Tank. It, it's like you know it's just like a room where the deal happens. I mean like that that's like very, like only only one component. Uh, and I, I I found that just about every small business is essentially a, like a human story or a family story. You've launched. Uh, small business learning center for anyone trying to start a small business uh, that, that you're trying to help. Um, and you've launched a $50 million foundation to help small businesses and families uh, called the Lemonade Foundation. Um, I might be missing, uh, I mean, uh, I, I guess, you know, that's just a play on your name at like uh, Limonis. <laughs> so, right? you know, it, um, the reason I launched the Learning Center is that one of the things that I learned through my eight-year journey with over 100 businesses on the air is that there's a common thread of what they were missing. And they were missing a depth of education. And the education isn't one plus one equals two or what's the capital of the state of Florida. It's what are the real things that happen in a business from inventory management to HR risk to you know, hundreds and hundreds of topics. And you know that as a business owner, that those things happen. And so I wanted to create a center where people felt, A, it's free. Uh, B, people could do it in the privacy of their own home. And there are so many folks who don't know the answer to things, but they're embarrassed to admit they don't know it. Um, and I, I'm one of those people. Sometimes if you ask me a question, I may fake it. Uh, and I decided years ago that I wasn't going to fake it. I was going to say, 
Can you explain that to me? I don't know it. I don't understand that. And I realize that the key it, is it's very powerful. If you can acknowledge ignorance, it's very powerful. It's, it's it makes the other person feel, uh, I think more connected to you. Yeah. Cause you're saying like, Andrew, I don't understand how that works. And, uh, it, it really hit me one day. I got a call from Jamie Dimon, uh, uh, from, you know, from JP Morgan. I was uh, working on something. My phone rang, uh, on the other end of the line. Hi, uh, is this Marcus? Yes. Uh, hi, this is Jamie. Uh, okay. I, I didn't know who it was. I'd like to just talk to you for a few minutes. You have a few minutes. I'm kind of in the middle of something, um, but I'd be glad because I, I, my, you could find my cell phone on the internet. And I said, I'd be glad to talk to you. I can't do it right now. He said, well, um, you know, I'm your banker. And I said, okay, I'm sorry, sir. I, I think you may have me confused. My banker is, I said this woman's name. He goes, no, no, I'm that woman's boss. And he said, this is Jamie Diamond. I said, no, seriously, who is this? Like, I, I, I'm really busy. And he said, well, listen, I only called. I got my, I got your phone number uh, from Steve Burke, who was the chairman of NBC at the time, <laughs> uh, who was on the board. And he said, I just want to call and tell you that um, I know you think you're only helping small business, but you're really helping people understand the human psychology of business. And that is something that you can't teach in a classroom. And uh, I just wanted to tell you that. And then they be, uh, Chase ended up becoming a, like a six-year sponsor of the show. Nice. And, uh, the, point, the point of that is, I, I think for me is, you what, like what you do and what I do, all we're trying to do is just educate, inform, inspire. That's it. Again, you, you've uh, acted in a way that's really um, unique, singular, uh, because you've walked the walk for years at great personal cost, not just in terms of uh, financial resources, but really the most precious thing of all, which is like your time, um, energy, and spirit. I I'm actually going to... to explain to you what I did, which was like my, my shot at the same problem, just because I, I want to hear what you think. Um, so I, well, you and I graduated from college around the same time. Um, I was not as enterprising as you, so I went to law school. Uh, and then after I went to law school, I tried to start a business that did not work out and then ended up going through sort of the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. Um, and so years later, after my company was acquired uh, in 2009, in 2011, I started a nonprofit that tried to... Uh, train the next generation of entrepreneur and help startups grow. Um, so the organization's called Venture for America. I want to see what you hear what you think of this. Um, so the thought process was that there are all of these enterprising college graduates who want to learn to become someone like you. But right now they go to JP Morgan <laughs> and uh, Deloitte, these uh, big consulting and, and finance shops to quote unquote learn about business. So what Venture for America does, Venture for America puts them through a boot camp of five weeks and then sends them to work at early stage growth companies run by entrepreneurs in Detroit, Cleveland, Baltimore, New Orleans, uh, Birmingham, and other cities around the country. So it's like a two-year national entrepreneurship apprenticeship fellowship. And then at the end of two years, if they want to start their own business, then we have investors in a seed fund to put money into them. Uh, and so the goal was to try and create like an army of future use, essentially, by sending them to work at these organizations. So the, the way that you have like the learning center to try and teach people about these things, though our approach was we had that camp, but then we said, look, just go work at the business for two years at like these formative um, 20s, you know, because most of them are, are coming out of college. Wow. 
I mean, what an amazing idea. And, and how long has the program been running? Uh, we started it in 2011, so it's nine years in. Um, we have some real successes where some of the alums have started significant enterprises. Uh, you know, at this point, I think we're responsible for something like maybe um, like a few thousand jobs, like depending upon how you calculate it. Um, I should put you in touch with the, the CEO, but I, I started and ran that organization full time uh, for six and a half years. And it was only after I realized that the pro- the changes in our economy were going to be much bigger and hairier than anything I could counteract with like my army of uh, entrepreneurs that I decided to do the inadvisable thing of running for president. <laughs> well, you made a statement and I think it was an appropriate statement to make. I think you gave a lot of people a lot of hope and, and, and the idea of possibilities and opportunity. And I think that that singular um, moment was a huge character defining moment. The fact that you're giving young entrepreneurs a chance to work in the real world. And then if they succeed and if they follow the program, there's opportunity for them to do more is really, I think at the center of what I believe in, which is I want to give you a hand up, but I'm not going to give you a hand down. And you got to work for it and you got to show me you're committed to it. And the way you show me you're committed to it is by going to work and following through. And I think that's amazing. How, how, how can other people get involved in the organization? People like me. Oh, people like you, geez, Marcus, we'll roll out the red carpet. I'll put you in touch with the CEO uh, because you could speak at the training camp. Um, you know, you could mentor some of the folks who are coming out. Uh, you know, you could do, you could, I mean, invest in, in some of the, the uh, growth businesses. Uh, you'd love it. it. It's essentially an army of aspiring yous. <laughs> and, uh, and to me, the problem is that, like, if you're an aspiring you, I mean, you and I both had, like, you know, frankly, like stumbles in our twenties. Cause like, you're just trying to figure it out. And like, and, it, and it's a very isolating. We had stumbles um, in circumstance. our forties. We had stumbles in our forties. I think yesterday. Yeah. You stumbled the whole time. It's true. Uh, you know, and, and I'm sure in your case too, you, you eventually have like a few uh, people that you connect with on like a real human level um, that understand you and what drives you. That That's the most beautiful thing about venture for America, Marcus, is these young people become so close to each other. Uh, that like imagine having that kinship early on where instead of people just thinking you're crazy, there are at least a few other crazy people like you <laughs> that, that are like, yeah, do that. There's a number of organizations out there that don't do a similar thing in practice, but in terms of principle of that camaraderie, it's like a YPO type organization where these young folks are sort of part of the fraternity of young entrepreneurs. And there's something that those lifelong relationships can never be fractured. I mean, what you've done is incredible. Um, and I can sense you and I saw the same need. And then, you know, we went after it in different ways. Uh, like, uh, so it's, that's one reason why I'm such an admirer of yours is like, I understand the spirit uh, and and the spirit of what drives you, the spirit of um, of helping people become stronger versions of themselves through this process of entrepreneurship in many ways. Cause like the business is the business, but really it's about the people. Uh, like it, it's, it's so vital in American life and we don't talk about it enough. Like you're, you're one of the primary champions that exists of this. Uh, and, and you know, like it used to be much more built into American life. Uh, but now it's less so. Um, I, I think why, it's one why, reason why, why, is, why you, Andrew, why is that? 
I mean, there are a few very, very big reasons. Uh, you know, if, if someone asks me, like, I, I say a lot of it is that we're in the midst of the most extreme winner-take-all economy in the history of the world, where when you and I were coming out of college, there was no Amazon. Like, now what's Amazon? Amazon's like a like $1 to $2 trillion company that, you know, just like hoovers up commerce right and left. Like, a generation ago, if someone were to want to start a hardware store, you might think that's a good idea. And then eventually, you know, like, the, the big box retailers made that a bad idea. And then... I liken it, the big box retailers were like tanks that came to town and the mom and pop businesses were like, oh no, there's a tank. Um, and, and Amazon's like a spaceship. <laughs> and so if you're like these small business owners, you look up and you're like, how the hell do I compete with a spaceship? You know, like the, the spaceship doesn't even need to make money in a given quarter. The spaceship has unlimited capital, unlimited data. Like, so, um, so, so that's one big reason why it's harder. Uh, you know, uh, for young people, it's that... The college education that you and I received in the 90s got two and a half times more pricey at some point. Uh, and so you have these young kids coming out who now have, you know, life-changing debt in a way that, like, for you and me back in the 90s, it was plausible that we could, quote-unquote, work our way through school. You could actually, like, make enough money to maybe pay for your school. But that was back when college cost, uh, you know, 20 to 25 grand a year and not 60 grand a year. And, like, you know, it's like, can, can a kid, like, you know... Uh, work their way through 60 grand a year it's like less likely uh, and then their choices get constrained like uh, a lot of the community financial institutions that used to exist got gobbled up by you know like the jp morgans of the world where, where like the the consolidation you see in retail for amazon has happened in financial services for sure it happens in tech for sure like uh, th like there are a lot of like the biggest industries that have become consolidated around like a few winners um, you know, media and journalism is another, like 2000 local newspapers gone. So if you're like a local journalist, like, you know, like that, that's gone. <laughs> and so you, you have a shot if you go to New York and work for, um, for NBC or like one of those, like, you know, th those outlets persist. Um, so there's something, uh, that's been lost and people like you and I are looking at it and we've sensed it. And then we're like, huh, like we, we, and, and what, what gets lost too is that process that makes those people, into the people they aspired to be. Like, in, in some ways, the people that you and I have become, uh, though we're kind of an earlier generation than a lot of them. Yeah. it. Um, I worry about where we go from here. And I, uh, along with you, feel like it's time to double down on the young people because I don't know what 10 years, 20 years looks like if they become disenchanted or disillusioned or suppressed. And so when, when we started this foundation, this $50 million foundation, it was exclusively uh, to provide financial grants, loans, and equity investments to underserved communities and underserved individuals. And people have said, Incredible. Me, yeah, you're just, you're just trying to help poor people. And I said, no, I'm actually not trying to help any specific class of people other than those who have not been given the same opportunities that I was given, period. And so we don't need to debate it because it's my money. It kind of doesn't matter what you think. <laughs> and so it's not like I'm using your money or the government's money. This is what I believe in. There are women uh, and people of color who haven't been given the same opportunity. By the way, when they take my money, I'm going to put them through the same paces, the same yeah. way. I just want people to feel like if they had an opportunity what would they do with it? If they fail, it's no different than people that are males or people that are not of color. 
it's so I just I worry about them and I worry about our our societal disregard or lack of acknowledgement. People like to talk about it um, and say we should start a fund. And you watch a lot of these big companies. Well, we're we're donating a certain amount of money to this cause. It's like it's not a cause. It's not a charity. These people are not. Um, they're not. They're not. Unfortunately, they're not. Um, you know, um, uh, handicapped. They're not disabled. They're just uh, socio and economically disabled. And I want to try to fix that. Am I going to fix it? I probably won't. Am I going to try? For damn sure. You're going to fix it. You're going to fix it for um, a certain number of people, and that in itself is incredible. Like if it's it, just it's for like, one, then I'm okay. Exactly. You know, like like I ran an education company that served thousands of people, and I said, it's like, you know, if you want to teach a thousand people, teach one person, then do it a thousand times. You know, you know? Like, like it's the same with what you're trying to do. If you're trying to remedy these inequities, do it for one person and then do it again. And then they'll teach other people. Yeah, I mean that that's the way change occurs. Uh, and I, I love what you said too. It's like, look, like it's my money. I'm going to do what I want. Like that. There's so few people that have made it to your. Uh, your stature uh, that do what you do, Marcus. You really are one of a kind. Uh, I'm so glad that we connected, and I'm I'm thrilled to um, to support anything you do and to champion your work because we need more people like you. And I, I guarantee that you're going to create other people that are like yourself uh, through your work uh, because you're going around. Ident- I mean, it's it's hard to have another you, um, but it, it's the, the same kind of thing I experienced with Venture for America. I don't want another me. There's enough me creating enough chaos and enough noise and enough frustration. <laughs> One is enough and then we're good. But Andrew, I thank you so much, my friend. I really appreciate the chat. I appreciate the heck out of you. So what can people look out for? You have a new podcast coming out in a new series. So they can just go on to MarcusLimonis.com where the Learning Center, the foundation and the podcast all are. I wanted to simplify it and make it easy. And then we're back with uh, the profit uh, first of the year, 2021. So we're excited. MarcusLimonis.com. Thank you, Marcus. Appreciate the heck out of you. Happy holidays. You too, brother. Bye-bye.